Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decom smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. Welcome, guys. Bodine, you just celebrated your birthday this last week, didn't you? I sure did. And how old are you? I turned 33. Did you do anything fun? I did. Um, you were a stinker and missed my celebration. Um, but we went and learned how to throw pottery and made some mugs and... I would love to call them bowls, but I'll probably just call them a vessel because I know some of them might not even make it out of the kiln, but it was a really fun experience. I'm really disappointed I missed it. Me too. We'll just have to go again. Okay. Sounds good. Today's episode is another case highlight, and we're going to be discussing the murder of Professor Judy Calder. This case highlights the use and advantage of luminol testing, which is a presumptive test for blood that is often used um, when the presence of blood is questioned, meaning when there's no visible red-brown staining present. And this often occurs in cases when a a crime scene has been cleaned in an attempt to destroy or even conceal that a crime has occurred. Judy Calder was a 64-year-old woman, and she was an associate professor here at the university, and she was in the Human Development and Family Studies Department. Our case really starts on Sunday, August 19th, 2007, when her husband reported her as a missing person. Judy was a resident of Incline Village, but obviously she worked here in Reno at the university, and so... Oftentimes, uh, to avoid extra commutes, she would just stay in town over a weekend. And on this particular weekend, she was staying at the Nugget. Her husband said that he had last had contact with her on Saturday morning. And so it had been about a day that he hadn't heard from her. And uh, they were able to locate Judy's car, which was several blocks from the south side of campus. Um, If you're familiar with campus, her car was actually found on Evans Street, kind of down past Record Street. Um, what used to be Record Street anyway. And later, uh, 10 days later, uh, Judy's body was located by hunters outside of Jackpot, Nevada, and that's in Elko County. And it was determined that Judy's death was the result of a stabbing. A man by the name of Muhammad Kamaladeen became a person of interest. Investigators determined that Muhammad, who was known to the Calders as Ricky Barge, owned a local business and was an associate and friend of the Calders. Muhammad was a known gambler who had gotten himself into multiple debts with local casinos, and it was suspected that the Calders had, on more than one occasion, paid off some of their friends' gambling debts. Um, It was reported that he owed the Calders more than $100,000. Sometime after Judy's disappearance, Muhammad fled the United States to Mexico. Law enforcement searched Muhammad's warehouse for evidence, and due to the fact that Judy had been stabbed to death, investigators suspected that blood evidence might be present at the scene of her death. Oftentimes, crime scenes are cleaned as a way to try and conceal that a crime had occurred, and due to this, in anticipation of going into that warehouse, they requested um, our crime lab to do luminol testing on scene. 
So let's take a step back from the case for a few moments and discuss more about luminol testing. So we already talked that it's a presumptive test for blood that, if blood is present, produces a blue light. And oftentimes when you hear about luminol um, on shows like CSI or any murder mysteries, usually you'll hear about luminol. It's kind of a very popular test that is featured. Oftentimes they'll say it fluoresces. That's actually not correct. Um, what happens when luminol is applied to an area and if blood is present, it produces light. So what you're actually seeing is the production of a blue light and not the fluids underneath or um, staining underneath fluorescing in any way. There's no additional lighting that's used. It's actually producing the light as a part of the reaction. And the way we do luminol testing here is that we have two solutions and then once combined they're sprayed over can be sprayed over large areas and um, it has a 15 minute reaction time so once those two different solutions are combined into that one we have 15 minutes to perform all of our testing get our documentation our photography that type of thing done yeah and so in that 15 minutes as you can imagine we have a lot going on um, when we used to do this testing in uh, the DNA section, we would work in uh, conjunction with FIS, and FIS has special settings for their cameras. So when I would go on scene and do this, I would actually do a small positive test first, and we would get all the camera settings done for FIS. They would work with their camera, make sure they have the, all the lighting correct and settings, and then photograph the positive um, positive control for the day. So we knew it was working. And then I'd mix up another, like a large batch and then reapply to a large area um, and wait and see if there was any reaction. And so there are some downsides. Darby, you wanna tell them about the downsides of luminal testing? Yeah, one of the biggest ones and one of the bigger challenges that we have to overcome is that luminol needs complete darkness for us to be able to see that blue light essentially. So that can be a really big difficult situation when we're going to crime scenes that we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. So if we can't make the scene completely dark, we might actually have to wait until nighttime until we can perform this test. Um, another one is that 15 minute reaction time. There's a lot of things going on. Going on. We have sometimes very large areas to cover. Um, so a lot of the times we will I guess section out or portion out mm -hmm. crime scenes into smaller sections that we can do with those 15 minute batches. Um, it also reacts with metal-based paints and cleaning solutions as well. Mm -hmm. And so as you can imagine, cleaning solutions are often used to clean up a crime scene. And so part of our training when it comes to luminol is being able to tell the difference um, of luminol reacting with blood versus luminol reacting with cleaning solutions and notably bleach. Um, it was probably one of my favorite things in training was to see luminol react directly with bleach. Part of it was I um, covered a countertop. I just sprayed like a light mist of bleach over the top and then applied luminol right over and when I tell you it is like an explosion of light that is what it looks like but the difference is that the reaction with bleach is very intense and very immediate and does not last it's almost like little just like pops of light that go off and then they die out whereas when it reacts with blood it's usually a less intense reaction in the beginning and then over that 15 minute time period intensifies um, and so that is the biggest part of 
doing this on scene. And because luminol is a very attractive test for people to watch um, on scene, it's a little bit difficult sometimes because we do have to be wearing an N95 mask because it is harmful for us, especially when it's aerosolized. And so people that want to watch the test being done, and when I say people, I mean law enforcement that's on scene, everybody has to be in a mask, everybody has to step back. And then when you first spray it, if there is any, um, you know, cleaning solution that was used. I mean, the whole area just like lights up and then everyone, oh, oh, and then you kind of have to say, no, 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 like, you know, wait a second, give it a minute, give it a minute let's see what happens. Um, and then it's kind of like having a lot of voices, right? Like, oh, what about this? And so you have to kind of step back and say, hey, I got 15 minutes. I got to get in here. I got to get my job done. Um, take the photographs, work with FIS and get all of that um, collected. I think that's probably what makes it one of the like, quote-unquote cooler or more attractive testing methods especially to see on tv and stuff because it's essentially showing you what you can't see with the naked eye mm -hmm. so it looks like there's nothing there then all of a sudden you apply these chemicals and now we have all of this testing or the staining that was potentially there at one time that you could never see. Yeah, and that's actually the difference with luminol when you compare it to the other type of presumptive tests that we do in the laboratory. So typically what happens is we look at items of evidence or a crime scene and visualize red-brown staining, or maybe we use some lights to help us visualize these different stains, whereas luminol itself is doing two things at once for us. It's one, helping us actually find the staining, and then if it gives us that positive reaction, it's also indicating the presence of blood. And what's really interesting about luminol um, is it's helping you to visualize something that's not seen, but you can find the trace dilutions. My favorite example is looking at carpet. So you can imagine having a really large stain on your carpet and renting like a carpet cleaner, going over it a few times, and so visually you don't see that. We apply luminol, and if that staining was blood, we know where to look. So then you can actually pull back the carpet and dig through the fibers down to that like plastic backing. Um, and we've cut out whole sections of carpet before and brought it back to the lab, and you can use a microscope and kind of dig down to the bottom. And you can visualize very dilute traces of red-brown staining. Um, also, you can see it in the pad underneath uh, the carpet. I was going to say, in some situations, you know, it might lead you to remove that carpet because yes. you see the luminol reacts or whatever, and they go to remove the carpet. And there's this like massive red brown staining underneath, underneath where it's settled. That's where you know we would take our sampling from. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, too, what's interesting is sometimes when you do the luminol, you still can't visually see anything, but then you go and swab it, and because it's so concentrated on your swabs, you can see a little bit of that red brown. And sometimes you don't see any red brown at all. It's just so dilute, but you can still get a potential profile from um, you know those trace dilutions that are left behind. Another difficulty um, that when dealing with luminol is the cleanup. So we actually have a list of certified businesses that when we do luminol testing, we'll leave behind um, because these businesses can come in and they are <clears throat> trained and certified to clean up biohazardous areas. Um, and, and luminol. And luminol. Mm -hmm. um, we also have to notify the health department when we use it. Because it is such a harmful um, chemical. And yes. so we have to notify them. Um, so we don't want to just, you know, go in and do a bunch of luminal testing and, and leave. We want to make sure that we, you know, leave uh, a way for proper cleanup as well. Now stepping back into the case, luminal testing was utilized at Muhammad's warehouse and staining was located that when processed in the DNA section was found to match Judy Calder. 
And this case is actually very interesting. Um, if you do find some time to maybe Google it or Google uh, Muhammad, you'll find that there are quite a few plot twists to this case. The first part of the plot twist was that, as we had previously discussed, Muhammad had fled the United States. And because he had fled to Mexico, Mexico does not have the capital punishment. And so in order to extradite Muhammad back to the United States in a homicide trial, authorities here had to agree that if found guilty, he would not be sentenced to death because Mexico does not allow capital punishment. So after being extradited, Muhammad confessed to his involvement in Judy's death, but he claimed that he's not the one that actually killed her. He said that Judy's husband was the one who had wanted her murdered over a dispute they had about a will. Muhammad claimed that it was her husband who funded the murder and that Muhammad was the one who put him into contact with a man by the name of Carlos Filomeno, who was the one who actually murdered Judy. And obviously, law enforcement went and um, interviewed Carlos, and he had a very different version of the story. So Carlos said that he had been doing work for Muhammad, and Muhammad had forced him to go and buy a knife in order to kill Judy. And he said that he did not kill Judy, but instead Muhammad was the one who had killed her. Carlos alleged that Muhammad wanted Judy murdered because he had owed her and her husband so much money. Additionally, Carlos uh, confessed to helping Muhammad clean up the crime scene, putting Judy's body in a copier box, and then additionally dumping her body in rural Nevada. Only Muhammad was tried in this case, and during the trial, an investigator from Toronto testified about a homicide out of Canada. The investigator told the courtroom that Muhammad had been a wanted man for 15 years for planning and funding the murder of a man named Bernard Bimbi. This is an interesting case if you were up for Googling it. Allegedly, Muhammad persuaded a juvenile to murder Bimbi and steal a $30,000 ring he wore on his pinky finger. Muhammad was found guilty of first-degree murder with a deadly weapon of a person older than 60. Additionally, he was found guilty for the solicitation to commit murder. He is currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. This concludes another case highlight. As always... Thanks for listening, and don't forget about our giveaway. Until next time. Bye, guys. From humble beginnings, forensics has grown to be a recognized field of science. In the next episode, we cover the evolution of the field that has brought you everything from the Marsh test to the Drunkometer. Join us as we share not only how the field of forensics has transformed from a group of self-taught specialists to a highly regulated field of scientific experts, but also an inside look at just how fast this evolution has taken place and some of the notable milestones along the way.